welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is the Scientific Director of the Canadian Nutrition Society, Dr. Sharon Panahi, who will be talking to Nishta Saxena on Season 2, Episode 2 of Nutrition Conversations on what nutrition topics are trending, how nutrition pop culture and trends drive science, and how people are trying to incorporate these in their own lives. Hello, Nutrition Conversations listeners. With each passing year, our understanding of nutrition evolves, driven by scientific research, cultural shifts, and changing consumer preferences. As we enter 2024, we find ourselves at the forefront of a nutritional revolution where sustainability, personalization, and mindful eating take center stage. On this episode, we plan to discuss some of the key nutrition trends driving this movement and discover how they're reshaping the way we nourish our bodies and our planet. Joining us is Nishta Saxena, a registered dietitian and founder of Vibrant Nutrition, a full-service clinical nutrition and nutrition education practice. She is also a proud mother of two, living the strategies she preaches to families across the globe. Her years of specialty expertise in pediatrics and family dynamic nutrition has positioned her as an authority in pediatric nutrition and feeding issues. She is also known as a nutrition mythbuster, promoting evidence-based nutrition rather than diet trends. Nishta divides her professional time between the academic, media, and private practice. She completed her clinical dietetic internship at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and her master's in clinical nutrition science at the University of Toronto, where she has a faculty appointment in the Department of Family and Community Medicine. You might also recognize Nishta from some of our recent CNS events, but also her numerous appearances on CTV. With that, I welcome you, Nishta, to episode two of the second season of Nutrition Conversations. Hi, Shirin. Wonderful to be here. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, So you've had several appearances, as I mentioned, on CTV. You've been on CP24. You've been approached by CBC. And you even have your own social media platform. And what I love about you is that your experience is so broad. You have research, clinical, and media experience. And you just do so many different things. So I'm curious about how you got into nutrition to begin with. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your path and, and some of your interests and what sort of led you to, to um, you know, all the different things that you're doing now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it's interesting because I think my path to being a nutrition professional was wonky. I mean, it's funny when I, as I've gotten older and I'm approaching 20 years of practice, a lot of dietitians actually have kind of a winding road, um, at least the uh, the older sect of dietitians. So I didn't, I originally thought, you know, I'm going to go to school and, and I really enjoyed science and sciences. And I thought I was actually going to do something that was more in that kind of hard sciences, I would say, you know, even chemistry, you know, I could picture myself, I thought in a lab or doing some type of work to like discover something scientific. And, um, you know, from the very beginnings of my life growing up as a child, one thing that I realized about myself was it took me a long time to realize this, by the way, <laughs> but I had poor health as a child and, and I, I felt like I struggled a lot uh, figuring out how to get my brain and my body working the way that I, I thought it could work. And I always wondered what would help with that. And the only thing that I knew was that I had one gift, which was talking. <laughs> Much to my parents' uh, dismay, I was a pretty talkative child, which was great. Um, and communication is something that I've always enjoyed. So fast forward to getting to be a young adult and pursuing, you know, uh, secondary, post-secondary education, I really wanted to figure out, you know, why do I, I thought, hard sciences, this will be the way that I can kind of figure out with human health or with health, something that could just, how could I feel better? You know, how could I, how, how can I help other people feel better? And I kind of went at it from that angle. But what I realized as I got into those sciences, so my path did start with a bachelor's in science and not specifically in nutrition, is that all of that is incredibly important. We need to understand those foundations of science. We need to understand these building blocks to understand the application, of course, of nutrition in our lifestyle and in human health. But the thing that I loved was communicating that science. So in fact, as time went on, I realized my gift and my passion and my interest was in the art of communicating the science of nutrition. And so as I got older, um, and I did eventually figure out some of the different fascinating nutrition aspects that can actually really help you change your life with nutrition, I realized more and more my passion was talking about that science. And so as I went through my career with thousands and thousands of hours of clinical counseling um, and talking presentations, again, launching into uh, being on uh, a nutrition expert on CTV, um, it's been an amazing journey for me to both hone you know, all of the academic pieces, the nutrition science pieces that have helped me understand the science of nutrition. And then my favorite part is working with so many people from all around the world for so many years and working on helping that knowledge translation piece, helping people understand how do we take, you know, these studies done in these labs all over the world? How do we interpret that in our life? Is it meaningful? Will it actually make a difference in, you know, how great I feel in my health in managing a disease? And so it was a wonky path starting in hard sciences with a kid who talked a lot, but that was sick all the time, <laughs> who wanted to fix herself and eventually figured out that nutrition is not just a science, it's also an art. 
Well, I think you definitely do a great job uh, with it. And I think, yeah, that, that commu- communication piece is important because we it's not just focusing on you know the, the research, um, but also being able to, to communicate that to not people only in the field, but outside of our, our field as well. So um, I definitely think that knowledge translation aspect is, is important. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Um, and so maybe we can get into some of the trends um, that we said we were going to discuss I don't know if I like the word trend so much. It makes me think about something that's sort of in, in fashion, but we'll, we'll call it that for now. Um, so the first one I want to discuss with you is sustainable nutrition. And so consumers are increasingly concerned about environmental impact of their food choices. Uh, this might lead to a rise in demand for sustainably sourced foods, such as, you know, the including organic, locally grown and ethically produce options. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, well, what a sustainable diet is and what are some ways to make more sustainable food choices? So sort of a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really interesting time because now more than ever, people are interested in protecting the planet and just stopping the cycles that have been happening for many, many centuries that are unfortunately not doing well for food systems agriculture, but even for actually the, you know, feeding the world. So what we, you know, and I will preface this by saying, I am certainly not a sustainability expert and I'm not an agricultural expert, but what I will say is really sustainability comes down to at its core, you know, taking only what you need, right. And not making, um, a a huge demand on the earth to get what you need. And one of the ways that we can do that, there's many ways we can do that, but really eating and consuming foods that don't demand excessive amounts of resources um, is one of the top ways to do that. I will say this is a hotly debated piece of science, um, but one of the ways that has been shown to do that is by making more food at home. So whenever we're relying on um, secondary tertiary companies to produce our food for us, that's a lot of quote unquote middlemen, right? And that's lots of resources and fossil fuels and packaging going through this entire process to come back to our table. But why are we not actually just taking whole food, minimally processed food and making it more ourselves at home? So one of the most top sustainable things you can do is make food at home yourself. Minimally processed ingredients. Now, of course, that requires uh, skills, that requires some level of knowledge of cooking and some interest. And these are things that I really promote among, uh, you know, children through to anyone that we work with to try and promote those skill set and support people because they really do need to be able to feed themselves and not rely on ultra processed, processed foods and food manufacturers because that takes out a huge proportion of the environmental load that that causes, you know, this, this decrease, this, this sort of strain on our systems. Um, Also, you know, things that can be made into um, easily, easily made into foods that are giving your body the most nutrition. So foods that have a high nutrient density per milligram, we want to try and consume more of those foods. So as an example, um, you know, consuming a processed, um, 
you know, a, a highly processed grain product that has had a lot of the nutrition removed, it's rapidly digested. Um, when a person's consuming that on a regular basis, they're really not getting the nutrition that their body needs. And therefore, they will be, you know, they will maybe potentially be needing to eat more of other foods. And therefore, they could actually be eating, you know, more food than they need in general, and they're not actually getting well nourished. So we want to try and find a balance between foods that don't tax the environment, but that do have a high amount of nutrient density. An example of that would be beans and lentils. Um, you know, I would say that you can have any dietary pattern. There are many, many multiples of dietary patterns that can work and still be sustainable. So you don't have to follow one specific dietary pattern, but utilizing foods that do have that really high nutrition value, but they have a low sort of... Uh, they have the low cost in sense of sustainability are really the focus of what you want your diet to be if, if sustainability is a priority for you. So beans and lentils are a source of many different nutrients as well as protein. And they can be, um, you know, they take, they can be harvested and consumed and produced in a way um, that can feed many people. Um, so those are some of those pieces. I think the other pieces are there's a huge drive towards um, retail environments and food retail environments, providing ways for people to bring in their own containers and packages. There's a big movement towards zero waste um, food stores and places to purchase food and get food into your home so that you're not, you don't have a clamshell with like interlayers of other clamshells just so that you can bring home six pairs. I mean, it makes no sense. Um, buying food in over packaging and over packaged foods. Um, consumers are kind of, especially younger generations, looking away from that. And they're trying to find more sustainable ways to physically get the food that they want to consume into their homes. And then, of course, as you mentioned at the top, you know, trying to find ways to connect with if it's food producers, if it's co-ops, if it's organizations that can take away the excessive transport of foods and create a closer connection between what's on your table and how far it came from. Um, you know, we want to try and again, reduce excessive fossil fuels to get foods uh, on our table. So things like eating within season, um, using food box services that utilize fruits and vegetables that may not look perfect, but they do come from local farms connecting directly. Some farms even have direct um, food box programs um, and getting involved. You know, if there's co-ops in your community, uh, farmers markets where you can connect to the people that are growing food in your area. And it's really a challenge to see how sustainable can you what kind of sustainability can you create on your table at home um, through the regular foods you consume, how you are getting those foods into your home, and um, who are you getting them from? Because it's really a cycle. It's a really full circle thing, um, trying to increase the sustainability of how you eat. Oh, those are some some great tips. Um, and so it's interesting that you mentioned the, the pulses or the beans and lentils. And so along the, the lines of sustainable eating, maybe we can get into this, this second trend about plant-based diets, now, you know, now that you've touched on that, and um, for, for our personal and, and also planetary health. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. What are the, the key health benefits of adopting a plant-based diet and 
uh, what are some of the impacts that it can have on our environment? Well, what we know is, um, you know, it's interesting, the term plant-based, we hear that a lot. And I think that instantly rings bells for people to say, um, I don't know, I think for some people, it makes them think I have to become a vegetarian and what we know, or, or, you know, a vegan or something. And what we know is that, as I had said, you can have a dietary pattern that includes animal products, because even if you have a dietary pattern that includes animal products, whether it be dairy or eggs or meat or poultry or a combination, still the majority of what you eat would be plants. So what I like to focus on is plant forward so that anybody within any dietary pattern understands the most of what you eat should be plant-based material with some, of course, sources of proteins. And then there are different people that will eat different ways. Some will eat meat, some may not, et cetera. But a plant-forward diet really just means you're focusing on, again, plants that contain um, nutrition, that are filling, that are grown in such a way that they are a small amount of production of that particular plant can actually feed quite a number of people. Um, so there's examples of things that you could grow. And once you process whatever you've grown, it can only feed a limited number of people. When you choose to eat more plant forward diets, generally speaking, you're eating specifically foods that it's easier for the resources that were demanded to grow that food, it can go further. And so that's another piece of sustainability. So I love for people to understand, unless you're just only eating meat and you would define yourself as a carnivore, all of us should focus on being more plant forward. And then eating in season is really, really helpful in terms of reducing the demand for fossil fuels on what's on your plate. And so when we, you know, when we want to have the luxury of eating um, some type of a tropical fruit, a fresh tropical fruit in the middle of a Canadian winter, there's a demand that is occurring to get that to your table. And so just questioning, you know, or asking yourself, like, what are there cycles that I can eat in that respect the, the actual climate that I'm in and the environment I'm in and the food that is grown around me? Um, and I will say it is a little bit tricky. I won't I won't oversimplify it because I'm not an agricultural expert in any way, but I will say that there's there's conditions on that too. So you do want to really understand um, the companies, the food producers that you're purchasing food from, they're really getting savvy. They're really able to tell you how much, you know, gasoline, how much of a carbon footprint did this particular piece of produce co cost you and the earth? And the reason they're getting so savvy and coming up with that data and those numbers is because the market demands that. Some of our gener Generation Z um, consumers really wanna know, is this actually bad for the environment? And it's not enough to say, greenwash it, right? And say, oh, it's all fine. It's good. Yeah, yeah, we're great. We they really wanna see, well, let's show me the numbers. Actually show me because um, there may be debate between if, if local or a little further than that is actually more sustainable, there's nuance here. And you do have to really look at the nuance um, to understand how you're contributing to sustainability and how you can do better. Great. And so, I mean, for someone who's, I, I'm glad actually you um, talked a bit about the difference between plant-based versus plant-forward, um, you know, because I, I thought plant-based is generally used to refer to ingredients and foods themselves, whereas the, the plant forward that you mentioned is more the, the style or the, the pattern of, of cooking and, and eating. So, so thank you for that. Um, and so 
maybe we'll get into another trend. So while plant-based diets, we know they offer a lot of potential health benefits, um, it's it's important to recognize uh, that dietary preferences and needs can also vary greatly from person to person. Mm-hmm. So I want to switch a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about uh, personalized nutrition. And mm-hmm. so what is it and how does that differ from a, a one-size-fits-all uh, approach or one-size-fits-all dietary recommendations? Yeah, this is like my, I think this is my favorite. If you don't want to call it a trend, I'll call it a theme. And I really think it's the right direction to move in. So personalized nutrition, that precision concept around nutrition is is absolutely the most scientifically valid way to approach nutrition. Because more and more we know, and I'm an expert in nutrition of the life cycle, and we know through the stages of the life cycle, your diet could change I mean, it could change 10 different times, your, your needs and requirements, it could change more than that. So from the time we're two years old or six months old as an infant through to the time that we are an 80 year old adult, if your diet didn't change, you would be in serious trouble. So the point is absolutely across the life cycle, we know our dietary needs and our nutrition needs change. But now what we know is even within different stages of a life cycle, specifically even with different genetic predispositions as well as the body that we're in and the life that we've lived also has an influence on how nutrition is absorbed and how nutrition impacts our body. And so we can see it's kind of like coming down and it's getting more focused around the fact that whatever your body's been through and whatever you've been through and the the genetics and the genetic patterns that you have and the, the genes that, you know, some of the C-SNPs that have been flipped on or off, as well as um, the stage of life that you're at, all of these different things have an impact on the right dietary pattern for you. So there truly is not one dietary pattern that works for everybody. That is just incorrect. And what we need to do is focus in more as we help people, assess people, understand what they're already dealing with and all of those different modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors, that's how we really need to come up with an appropriate nutrition plan and a dietary pattern that's going to support that person through this phase and then into the next phase of their life. So there is nothing more important than personalized nutrition, in my opinion. I I have to agree with you on that one. And so as we explore this personalized nutrition and its, its potential to, um, to optimize individual health outcomes, I think it's also interesting to consider how our dietary choices impact not only our overall well-being, but also the, the health of, you know, um, other health aspects. So maybe I'll, I'll get into the, the next trend on our list, which would be our gut. So I think mm-hmm. that's another um, um, another outcome to look at. And so um, our gut health or digestive health, uh, we know refers to the balance and, and function of, of microorganisms, mainly the bacteria that in- inhabit our gastrointestinal tract. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that this microbiome it plays a crucial role in various aspects of our human health, um, impacting not only our digestion, but also our immune function, metabolism, mental health, and, and so much more. Um, so you know, getting into a little bit more uh, the specifics, uh, can you talk about a little bit about what nutritional factors influence gut health and why they are important for overall well-being? Yes, I would say this is by far the most popular trend that we see in nutrition, in clinical nutrition, by far. Gut health is the buzzword. And with good 
uh, with good uh, reason, because we do now finally have this, I mean, it's, we're just at the tip of the iceberg and the, on understanding the microbiome. But what we do know now more than ever is the connection between the gut and the brain and that gut brain axis and how it goes both ways. It's a two-way highway and it has a huge impact on our overall health for all of the different reasons that you just mentioned. So when it comes to nutrition, you know, we often see clients that are wanting to know, oh, what foods can I just add or what foods can I remove to have optimal gut health? But what we like to do is is give them the, just help them understand there's multiple modifiable factors that are impacting your gut health. And again, it is very personalized because it really depends on what has occurred for you over the course of your life thus far to impact your gut health. All kinds of different factors, disease, genetics, medication, medical treatments, um, pregnancy, hormonal changes, um, just to name a few, are going to have a huge impact on your gut health overall. What we know from a nutrition perspective is serving the tissue of the gut. There's multiple factors that are going to impact how our gut is functioning. And so serving that tissue, what does that mean? It means you know providing your gut with nice fiber-rich foods and soluble fibers, soluble fibers to allow beautiful fuel for that microbiome to work on in the large bowel, but also to offer your body lots of nutrients for absorption and ideally keep the, you know, keep the system humming, keep the, that lumen area, the enterocytes in the gut, keep everything moving well and allow it to kind of function in its sort of best at its most optimal um, functional capacity. But the other pieces that impact the gut that a lot that we've been talking about a lot since 2019 specifically is the enteric nervous system and the nervous system of the gut and how it's directly linked to our central nervous system that can have a huge impact on the symptoms that people experience and the things that drive them to see dietitians and their doctor saying, oh, you know, I have all these gut issues, bloating, pain, um, irritability of the bowel, irritable bowel syndrome is one of the number one reasons people go to see their doctor. And these symptoms in this sort of subcategories and subtypes of IBS, there's about seven or eight, um, they all do relate in some way to the function of this enteric nervous system. So that is something that is not specific specifically affected by nutrition. But again, it comes back to your point that the connection between our gut, the microbiome, as well as our nervous system, and that two-way highway, that's going to have a big impact on gut health as well. So some of the newer data around supporting managing symptoms of IBS or people that have gut health symptoms is working on the nervous system and actually looking at some of the mental health conditions that people may be struggling with that are driving some of these gut health issues, things like anxiety, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, um, a whole variety of different nervous system dysregulation as well as mental health symptoms can also drive into the, the, gut, health, um, the gut health symptoms people experience. So you really do have to look at it from this holistic perspective, of course, making sure people are staying, you know, eating minimally processed food the majority of time. We do know now ultra processed food, the consumption of ultra processed foods has never been higher. Does that make a difference to our gut health? Yes, it does. We don't know enough about the microbiome yet to say all of the differences it makes. But what we do know is consumption of all of these industrial byproducts, emulsifiers, um, fillers, binders, as well as byproducts that are just created during ultra-processed food production, they are definitely not, not helpful and they're not helping in any way in terms of managing our gut health. So a minimally processed diet, 
really looking at um, the stress in your life, nervous system regulation, supporting your mental health, feeding it gut bacteria, nice fiber-rich, nutrient-rich foods are some of the foundations to help support a healthy gut. Great message. And so, you know, as you've mentioned, good nutrition is important in promoting diverse gut bio, uh, microbiota, um, but it also affects our immune system as well. And so getting into the next trend, um, eating for optimal immunity and overall health. So the role of the immune system we know is generally to protect the individual against pathogens. Uh, and nutrition is one of the multiple factors that determines the immune response. So definitely good nutrition is important in, in supporting this immune immune response. So can you talk a little bit about the role of diet in supporting immune function, what maybe some of the key nutrients are? Um, and I know we can't go without talking about COVID-19 yes. and, you know, some of the specific dietary factors and, and supplements. Uh, you know, what are some recommendations? Uh, sorry, I know I asked a lot of questions sort of all at once, <laughs> no, but I guess uh, essentially what I'm asking about is, is the role of diet and uh, or specific dietary factors and and if you can talk a little bit about the, their role in a healthy immune system yes so it's a great question and it was never more relevant i don't think than in these past four and five years um covid really one probably the only great thing about it is that we learned a lot about immune function and nutrition um there's some great papers and review papers that have been published and we know that there are some key nutrients that have a role, of course, immunity is bilayered. So we have an immune system, it's a dual system. There's innate immunity, and then there's the immunity that we can support because as we've learned, you cannot boost immunity with supplements of any type of nutrients. Um, but we do know the basics, having all of the things I said, minimally processed diet, a nutrient-dense diet, eating per gram of what you're eating, try and pack as many nutrients as possible per gram but also making sure your nervous system, sleep is a huge part of having proper immune function as well. And our immune system does change over time and unfortunately becomes re less resilient as we age, it ages with us. But what we do know from these, some of the research that has recently come out is some key nutrients, vitamin D in particular, is something that is in Canada in particular, we require vitamin D supplements for our entire life here because we know it has such an impact on immune function. And now we know that even more um, as well. Things like vitamin C, a lot of Canadians are not getting enough vitamin C in their diet. And this is really crucial because before COVID, we may not have realized how important that role of vitamin C is um, in our immune function. As, as well as in all of the other roles vitamin C has. Um, and zinc, as a trace mineral, zinc is something lots of people are not getting enough of either. And again, we were shown that zinc is something that we probably don't focus on in a lot of dietary counseling, but it is something that we need to make people aware of. Um, and as well, B12. Um, interesting to see that for some reason, in, in many populations as people are aging, there, there is sometimes a drop in B12, and we don't know specifically why. Is it because of a diet, dietary inadequacy? Is it because of absorption? Again, what is the body that we're talking about where the B12 is low? And so not having some of these B vitamins to be able to support the conversion of our food into energy um, can become very problematic for supporting a functioning immune system. So it does go beyond nutrition. It is very also, we, we learned a lot about how emotional resiliency 
and being feeling emotionally supported and socially connected actually has an impact on our immune function as well. So it's really multifactorial what we know will support immune health. Um, and then from those nutrition pieces, we want to get as much as we can from that minimally processed diet, but we want to use supplements because we do need supplement um, to support ourselves fully. Right. So vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, zinc, B12, those are some of the nutritional factors. I'm glad you touched on sleep, um, physical activity, that social connectedness. I think those are those are great points. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about another trend or topic. Um, that's, um, I mean, this was all sort of nicely coming together. And I think this might be in a way related, but also, um, you know, sort of... Uh, Related but unrelated. <laughs> um, <laughs> pro protein metabolism. So, um, I mean, we didn't touch on this when we talked about plant-based diets, but uh, for the, so the RDA for protein is 0 0.8 grams of kilogram per, per body weight. And we know that this should actually be much higher. So around 1.2, 1.3. Um, a lot of the dose response studies, they reported that ingestion of about 20 to 25 grams of protein uh, is sufficient um, to maximize uh, muscle protein synthesis rates, uh, especially after exercise uh, in healthy young adults, um, with no further increase uh, in synthesis rates when larger amounts are, are consumed. But then there's this new study that you actually introduced to me. It's from 2023, mm -hmm. quite recent, um, from the group uh, Tremelin, if I'm pronouncing it correctly at all, uh, and it's entitled Anabolic Response to Protein Ingestion During Recovery from Exercise Has No Upper Limit in Magnitude and Duration in Vivo in Humans. So this has shed some new light on protein consumption uh, post-resistance training. And so, uh, like I mentioned, uh, contrary to what we know before, that the 25 to 35 grams of protein uh, per meal has been sort of the, the maximum amount that could stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Their study suggests uh, larger boluses, such as 100 grams, may actually result in uh, significantly greater uh, muscle protein th synthesis, particularly in untrained individuals. Mm -hmm. So without maybe getting into sort of the details of this study, maybe you can give us uh, uh, a little bit of a intro to some of their findings and, and why this was perhaps meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think what I what I take away from this study, it caused a lot of waves in the sports nutrition um, world. And I think it was because even as, in my training as a dietitian, I was taught that, you know, at a meal or at, a, at an intake, a food intake, you can only have a maximum and your body will only maximally absorb, you know, 30 grams of protein. Otherwise, and, and so there would be no benefit to eating more than that. And more than that could actually be causing, you know, excessive body fat gain, et cetera. I think the interesting piece about this study is, first of all, very few people are even meeting getting 25 or 30 grams. So when you look at middle age and you look at adults that we would want to, especially adult women in their middle age, we want to make sure as we're aging that we're consuming enough protein because that's also the main keystone of supporting immune function and keeping that lean mass on our body. And what this study shows us is that, you know, many, many people do not do resistance training. So if we just do studies in young people who've trained and done resistance training and, you know, they're, they're eating this optimal diet, it's not really real life. And what I loved about this was it was saying that many people aren't getting the protein they need during their day. 
And if they are sitting down at dinner and having a bigger portion of protein that exceeds that 30 grams, even if they don't get to 100 grams, because also very few people are obviously going to hit that number as well in one sitting, but the idea is their body can still benefit. They will still be getting adequate, they'll still be getting protein from what they're eating and absorbing it. And because most people do not do resistance training, because most people are not hitting their physical activity guidelines, and they're certainly not doing that with resistance training, um, in these untrained people that are eating a large amount of protein, um, their body is taking that in. And it's, I think it's almost like a great message that even if you don't do things quote unquote perfectly, you don't create this perfect skeleton of protein eating four to five times a day, you're not doing you know, resistance training. Of course, we would love if people were doing more of that, but if they're not doing that, um, can they still benefit from eating you know, good quality protein, even if it's once or twice in a day? Yes, they can. And um, this is particularly important for people as they're aging, who are maybe they're just starting to resistance train, or they're just learning about this. We want to make sure people are given a chance to understand that they can consume more than just a, a small portion of protein, and they and it's going to help them. And the interesting thing is, yes, of course, we're still teaching people. It doesn't mean you're sitting down to a plate of bacon. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about finding a great highly highly biologically valuable source of protein with lots of beautiful amino acids in a great food matrix, right? We want to have that in a, in a really nice format and eating that, if you can only do it once a day, it's still going to be beneficial because the flip side of that is when people from a behavior perspective don't feel like they are doing things well or perfectly, they often give up. And this is, in fact, why we see we we saw the physical activity guidelines decrease. They were actually lowered, not because people needed less physical activity, but because they were so demoralized by not meeting the level that was required in the physical activity guidelines that they were lowered to be more seemingly accessible. So we don't want to create that same mentality with protein. We want people as we're aging to stay strong, support their immune system. And I thought this was really interesting to know that maybe there isn't an upper limit that we have to tell people to restrict themselves to if they are only able to get their protein at certain points. Great. Thanks for, for clarifying that for us. And um, maybe I'll, uh, along the same lines, but also a, a little bit of a different topic from what we've touched on earlier, um, basal metabolic rate and how that changes over the lifetime. Um, so BMR, basal metabolic rate, we know it refers to the amount of energy expended by the body at rest to maintain our basic physiological functions that do undergo several changes throughout the different stage of our lives. And we all talk about how our metabolism decreases as we age and we can't really do anything about it. And um, this seems to be a little bit of a I don't know if you would call it a trend, but uh, what would you say about that? Is you know, is is there anything we can do about it? Yeah, I love this so much, and the re the people I love this for are perimenopausal women. It's, it's a group close to my heart, um, and the reason why is there is this. It's sort of a mythology that just as soon as you get over maybe 50, 60 years old that your metabolism slows down and therefore you lose all your muscle, you gain this excessive abdominal fat and there's really no hope for you. And you're just, that's just your destiny. And what we know from some of the more recent studies is in fact, when you control for lean tissue, so when you control for lean mass, we actually see that the, the metabolic rate doesn't really change that much. 
There are other things that change. Of course, hormones are changing and hormonal fluctuations are occurring. But the reason this is so important to understand is because there are things you can do to maintain and preserve your muscle mass, your energy, and to reduce your um, the risk of you developing lots of adipose visceral fat. So that is why it is so important to understand that um, there's many things you can do and it may be different than what you did in your 20s. So as an example, resistance training is something every adult as you, I mean, it would be great if you start in, in your young adult years, but not everybody does that. But you can start anytime in a safe way is the number one thing that you can do to help preserve the lean muscle that you have, as well as consuming adequate protein. And adequate, as you've mentioned, needs to be our, our levels that we're describing to people as adequate 0.08. It's not high enough. It needs to be much higher than that. And it may even need to be higher than we think it does. Um, so that consumption of protein can actually offset a lot of these changes that people feel they're experiencing. So it's not that the symptoms you're experiencing as you're aging, especially as a female, are not occurring. They're definitely happening. And there's definitely changes happening, mind, body, spirit, physiologically all over the place. But it doesn't mean you don't have any control. It doesn't mean that um, you can't gain muscle through your perimenopausal and menopausal years. And it, that is not true. You absolutely can. You can retain muscle that you have. And you can also reduce your risk of abdominal and visceral fat by you do have to change slightly the profile of macronutrients that you might be having, the type of activity and the frequency with what you're doing. And then of course, we want to talk a little bit about optimizing, working with your primary care provider to absolutely optimize, you know, your sleep. That's a huge issue. I understand that can make it very difficult for women through this age to even do any of the things that I'm talking about. So it, it is something where you can look at it from many different angles um, in working with a professional as well to talk about hormonal management. Um, and we see new, new information coming out about HRT and things like that and discussing with your primary care provider what will be right for you. There's many tools we have that can actually help us stay lean and strong and healthy as we age, regardless of our metabolic rate. And I think we need to get that idea out of our head that uh, we have we have a, a metabolic rate that's failing us and there's nothing we can do. We can absolutely be strong and thrive through our middle age through menopause. I'm definitely with you on that one and I find it quite <laughs> motivating actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so Don't give up. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, I think there are definitely more topics we can cover, Nish. We could probably talk forever. So we've touched on sustainability, uh, plant-based diets, uh, and our planetary health, or as you've called it, plant-forward diets, uh, mm -hmm. personalized nutrition, our gut health, immune health, protein metabolism, uh, you know, our BMR, uh, basal metabolic rate throughout our lifetime. Um, and so we know nutrition, its recommendations, these are always evolving. Um, are there any key takeaways you wish to leave our listeners with? Uh, just kind of, you know, looking broadly at the topics that we've discussed. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key, one of the key points, the overarching concept, anybody, you know, anyone, any of your listeners will know this, you have to have a minimally processed diet. As much of your diet as possible needs to be minimally processed. And I know that that's a different number for different people um, because of life circumstances, because of food access, all of those different things, skill sets make a difference, but do the best you can within what you are, what you're capable of. Minimally processed diet, um, 
focus on your nervous system and your social connections because they optimize what you're putting into your body. <clears throat> so if you lived alone in a room and you were eating a perfectly nutritionally balanced diet, you still might not be healthy. <laughs> so make sure that you're maintaining all of the connections that our connection to our, our friends and our family, but also socially, we're meant to eat together. And also with the earth, understanding how what you're consuming, how that's impacting the earth. And the last thing I would say is, um, just yeah, don't 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 fall for any of the uh, the TikTok trend tips that tell you that a food is toxic, a food is only this food is good, only this diet is good. This is the dietary plan everyone should follow. Um, none of that's true. What we know is you are an, an individual as individual as a fingerprint, and therefore the nutritional program guidelines and plan that you should follow is as individual as a fingerprint. Well, thanks so much. As always, you leave us with uh, these great messages to, to follow. <laughs> so thank you so much, Nish, Nish, for this informative and insightful discussion. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. For sure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope that you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find us on various platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on your favorite app and you'll have access to all our episodes in one place. We release new episodes at the end of each month, so mark your calendars and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.